Welcome to Podcast on Fire on Young and Dangerous 2 and the Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. And when we last left the Hongheng Triad Society boys in Young and Dangerous, everything was awesome! <laughs> everything is cool when you're on Causeway Bay! We looked down on that movie, at least I did. That, that It was glorifying the Triad lifestyle and it ended in the most joyous ways. They killed someone and then they got Causeway Bay. Yay! Freeze frame. But what happens when you head back to the Triad Society with Ikin Cheng and the boys? Uh, well, there's a few reasons uh, why this is merely a Jordan Chan adventure party. We'll discuss that, why that is. But we follow, for half a movie maybe, Jordan Chan's adventures in Taiwan in Young and Dangerous 2. Why aren't all the teddy boys constantly in this? Well, the sequel to Young and Dangerous 2 came out while Young and Dangerous 1 was still in the theaters. So that's a discussion point, uh, and uh, we can put forth some theories, or maybe my guest here, my co-host, knows something in terms of why a sequel came out uh, so quick. So that's the long, rambling explanation that uh, we are going back to the Young and Dangerous universe, and maybe we'll do the third one, and then we're out. Uh, But also, Hammer Films and Shaw Brothers get to merge uh, their take on depicting vampire battles the western and eastern way in The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires from 1974. And after Dutch who's with me, well... I thought uh, we, we should keep a theme going here because I had him on for the Young and Dangerous 1 discussion and he brought some uh, quality context there and uh, he's back to discuss uh, Teddy Boys and the Vampire Boys, I suppose, uh, the Golden Vampire Boys. Uh, and uh, that is no uh, none other than uh, East Green, West Green. So, Paul Fox, so good morning, buddy. How are things? Good morning. Hung Hing forever. Yay. <laughs> How's the progress on the uh, Ikin tattoo that we never see, I think, in Young and Dangerous 2? I'm a baby when it comes to needles. So, you know, basically I'm just doing like a centimeter at a time, you know, once a year. So probably before I'm dead, it'll be finished. The tail is coming along (laughs) really nicely. I I remember saying that I have no interest in going into uh, Young and Dangerous 2 for discussion. But I've heard from you, and and, I mean, I've seen the the first three ones. And I wasn't totally impressed with um, any movie, really. But what I heard from you and others was that the first three, they're okay to watch for some kind of character progress. And then afterwards, it starts to recycle the old triad genre tropes and twists and turns. Uh, is that still something you, you know, when you think back on it and now that you have watched two again, is it still the, f- the first three they, they, they can rank as somewhat interesting and then it's okay to leave the series uh, in the review mirror. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think if I recall my statement, it's, you know, watch the first three and then I think you're introduced to enough characters. I think Sandra M's character is introduced in three or maybe four, but... Three, because I've, I've not seen four and I remember her. Yeah. So, you know, once you once you get that, you've, you've got a character that we're going to talk about today introduced and they get... They both get spinoff films, which... Which are, for me, better than average and, and better than some of the later films in this series. Yeah, it, it was a nice byproduct of this era that filmmakers uh, went into the spin-off territory to try and make independent stories and maybe living a little bit outside of the shadow of the series. Um, because I believe one movie is literally a Jordan Chan movie where he's on the run again. I think it's one of those... Uh, those were the days movies so one of several ones in the 90s that was called those were the days but it's not this taiwan 
adventure but it's rather if it's even taiwan but it, it, it is like a separate chicken movie which i remember on love hk film i think it got a good review so, so that says to me well the spin-offs should be consumed and examined even more yeah and you do have um as, as you've mentioned before the character from the first film who got a little bit of notoriety notoriety francis M's character of ugly kwan got sort of his own unofficial spin-offs as well I, I share that with you. Have you had time yet to sit down with it? Yeah, I've, I've watched part of it, and uh, yeah, it's 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 fun and different to be, to say the least. They're, they're pretty upfront from the beginning, I think, because he's reading the um, trial comic book of a toilet, and that uh, live action depiction of the comic book is just pure. Well, it, it is satire to a degree. It's overly heroic triad uh try boys and uh in action you know and then he wipes his butt with uh, one of the pages so <laughs> that's subtle that is francis having a ball francis is not recast in this one there's actually one person that is recast in this one but uh, we'll get to that it's a it's another trope of the series if you die you, you'll be let in again we'll 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 put a different hairstyle on you no one will ever know yeah which is very much i mean it's i've not read the teddy boys comics but having read plenty of you know, U.S. comics over the years and a couple of the, uh, like, uh, Man Called Hero comics that got translated early on. That's that's a, a pretty common trope. You know, you kill off a character and, oh, he's not really dead. Here's He's back. He didn't die. Or here's a brother that looks exactly like him. Or here's a clone. Or he's been in hiding. You know, these these things, you know, work across various forms of media when it comes to narrative and and pulling from popular characters especially when you create something like this where my feeling is is they you know they had a property that was popular in one medium and they's like let's make it into a movie and look at how much money we made we've got to make another one right now Mm -hmm. so you know and oh we we did something to a character we've got to fix that right now so We'll probably get into that a little bit more. The the the, the funny thing would have been uh, because one of the characters is recast, but not as uh, there's no family connection or anything. It's simply a new character. It would be funny if they went to his gravestone or whatever. Like, uh, pay respect to our fallen brother, <laughs> and he's the actual actor uh, bowing to his own grave. That would have been fun and sort of meta, yeah. but they weren't that clever. Uh, but uh, we'll get to that. Some quick contact information there. This is Podcast on Fire, the flagship show of the Podcast on Fire network. We are available on podcastonfire.com, along with all our other shows on uh, a variety of uh, topics and movies uh, covering uh, Japanese cinema, Korean cinema. The Japanese show, I've been kind of stuck in terms of um, finishing up the Hideo Gosha series, but that, that is happening. And then I'm going to move over to something anime related. Haven't decided yet what I'm going to move over to because uh, people have sort of prodded me like talk of your violent shit that you like talk of it talk of it now I dare you so uh, we maybe we won't go into hentai territory or anything but uh, maybe some adult stuff uh, uh, so we, we're gonna do uh, episode breakdowns of uh, fist of the north star it's only 150 episodes we can do it and after hearing your uh, coverage of the taiwan dragon ball movie um, i'm anxiously awaiting your future coverage of the dragon ball anime series <laughs> i'm gonna leave that to uh to tyler miller who's uh, way more knowledgeable about dragon ball and actually follows dragon ball so maybe i can rope him in to uh, to actually give me uh, uh you know guidance on where to where to start you know that's gonna happen we also have shows on uh, sleazy movies we do bonus episodes every now and again and all that is on podcastonfire.com we can be contacted on social media and email uh, our email is podcastonfire at googlemail.com you can reach us on uh, facebook and the likes if you click uh, one of the buttons at the top of our website 
that uh, there's also a button to our Twitter account, a button to our iTunes uh, page, uh, rather iTunes feed. And uh, if you like the show and want it uh, delivered in a timely manner, please uh, consider subscribing, leaving a star rating and even a written comment. And finally, stream us on Stitcher Radio or wherever you can find uh, podcasts out there on the web because we're picked up by... Uh, because we have a feed, we're picked up by podcatchers. So there it is. I write about a variety of Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies on SoGoodReviews.com. And I have a little video hub called com, And my tweets are available at SoGoodReviews. Paul, my friend, you have a wonderful podcast that has branched out this year as well, and I've been um, I've been the recipient of, um, or rather, I've had the honor to guest on. Uh, you uh, you have a little sub series going on on East Screen West Screen that I don't think we talk about enough on this show. So, regardless if you and I in reality have finished that coverage, it's going to be up there. So, East Screen West Screen uh, plug plug uh, the URL and the show, and what is the sub series that I'm talking about? Yeah, we are at uh, Kongcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. And you can find the show East Screen, West Screen on various feeds and podcatchers and whatnot. And we talk about, try to talk about as current Hong Kong cinema as we can. Although since moving back to the States, it's been very hard for me based on my current geolocation since... uh, They don't seem to like Asian movies down here in South Florida. You say that, but I have nothing... And what, considering <laughs> what Welgo just seems to be pumping into the American market, I'm jealous, like a thousand percent jealous. So I'm still in the wrong city because I get maybe one out of ten titles that they release down here. One. I need to be in one hundred percent more yeah. than I get. So stop <laughs> so, your whining. <laughs> yeah, I'm a whiner. What can I say? You even went out to see the uh, the uh, the boys in their not their reunion movie, but uh, Eakin and the boys got cast in a in a um, uh, recent uh, heist movie. So uh, yeah. you even got to see that. It is is it is very much a reunion movie for the series that we're talking about today. There's a lot of callbacks to it and musical cues, and we actually just did a review for that on our most recent episode, which is still on the editing desk right now as we're recording but i was very fortunate to get down to see that but you know other stuff you know we didn't get either of donnie's movies you know big brother and more recently his uh iceman sequel which (laughs) i've heard is a good thing but still we didn't get it we didn't get it you know as i as i always say to my friends who are back in hong kong when you live in a desert even a drop of dirty water is something that you're going to desire so (laughs) but yeah you know i do i do have the fortunate the good fortune to get the occasional thing. Whereas, you know, unfortunately some people like yourself don't have access to anything. And it, you know, just makes me wish we were in a world where we had, you know, access to day and date stuff streaming that we could pay for, even in, even in a heightened price, you know, like maybe 150% of a ticket price, there would be some things that I pay for if I could get it, you know, the day it's released in the cinema. Um, But it's not the world we live in yet. And hopefully that's starting to change. If you look back at Welgo's history, I can't, can't for the like of me remember that their Hong Kong push or Hong Kong mainland push was as intense as it is now or has been for the last few years. Yeah. So you can only hope that that's going to increase in in temperature. It's not just here. I mean, we were just having a discussion about a sort of Twitter thread that sparked up at the time of this recording where a person in Hong Kong was lamenting the fact that uh, last year's Donnie Yen Andy Lau movie, Chasing the Dragon, is not available on streaming platforms there. So no Hong Kong Netflix, no Hong Kong iTunes. 
And the, the best of my research ability was to say, I think it's because they got some kind of contract deal locked up with mainland with a mainland platform called Yoku, which if you're not China, Chinese language friendly, you can get access to and you can buy, you know, a month subscription to and you can watch stuff there if you're willing to try and, you know, navigate a little bit. But it's definitely not user friendly and not everything has uh, English subtitles. In fact, most things don't. So in the case of uh, Chasing the Dragon, it's a Mandarin dub with Chinese subtitles only. But I was able to use it to watch the recent Detective D movie um, from Tsui Hark, Detective D and the Four Heavenly Kings, where they did have English subtitles. And my co-host Kevin said, hey, it's here on a legit platform. You can just, you know, use an iTunes card, buy a subscription for a month, and, you know, it's fairly cheap and go in and watch it. And so there are little things out there, you know, all over the challenges, I would say, you know, wherever you are on the planet that that you face. And sometimes they're weird ones like, you know, so in this case, this guy can't get access to a Hong Kong movie digitally. He would have to go out and buy the the physical media. So th this is this is the problems we face as uh, movie lovers and and media critics, I guess. It's tough. It's tough out there, man. <laughs> as, I, as I as I wrote to Kevin, I, I said, hashtag film critic problems right <laughs> <laughs> and i got you off track uh, what's the uh, wonderful little sub-series that you've got going on i'm not saying wonderful just because i'm on it it's uh, wonderful because i love the idea no it's absolutely wonderful because you're on it uh, because you bring so much to the table and it's a indeed a pleasure to always talk with you about films we call it hollywood on hong kong and it's a sub-series where over the course of the year we've been looking at Various Western takes on films that are primarily set in and about the Fragrant Harbor. Yeah, it's been a, a history lesson in a way because it's gone from literally the formation of Hong Kong up to modern times and uh, even a handover. So uh, that's been a thread that Paul has uh, crafted and it's been, uh, it's been uh, educational because uh, a lot of these films have been uh, completely new viewings uh, for me. So um it's been fun. A new kind of work, a new kind of challenge for myself. That's something I always enjoy. So listeners, check it out. We'll link to his screen, West Screen, as we always do. In the meantime, we're going to take a musical break. And after that, we'll be back to discuss Young and Dangerous to The Hong Kong Tribe Boys Are Back. And is it any good or not? Well, we'll let you know. And we'll be right back. <laughs> And welcome back in the first uh, review for this episode is Young and Dangerous 2 from 1996, just like the first movie and plot from the love hk film review of the film quickie sequel to the hit young and dangerous focuses this time on chicken played by jordan chan whose new and elderly boss loy kung played by kelly lao and hot lai and hot girlfriend yao played by ching miao from taiwan try to make an inroads into macau however they intend to do so at the cost of chicken's old gang the hong hing group run by reinstated and ever benevolent boss simon yam Complicating things are a rivalry between Nam, played by Yikin Cheng, of course, and fellow Hong Hing member and nose picker Tai Fei, played by Anthony Wong, who's a new addition to the series, who sides with the Taiwanese agents, uh, uh, who sides with the Taiwanese against his Hong Hing brothers. Major nose picking drama for you. 
So there it is. And, and believe me, because it's Anthony Wong, he's not miming anything here. He's not nose picking as symbolically or anything. No, he's picking his nose because uh, he's Anthony Wong, his uh, method, and uh, he doesn't care how he comes off on screen because have you seen Ebola syndrome business? <laughs> that's uh, that's uh, the same year even where he was enjoying being filthy on screen. And I'm not talking sexual, Paul. I'm talking filthy. Doing such awful, awful, filthy, smelly things. And uh, Ebola syndrome and Young and Dangerous too could be uh, your next uh, family uh, weekend double bill. Because I assume you have those. Category free or not, right? <laughs> <laughs> not, not, for the, not for the next couple of years. <laughs> I'm going to wait until the little one is at least five. And then, yeah. then Ebola syndrome for you, kid. While the first was still enjoying its cinema run, the first Young and Dangerous movie, and that lasted from January to April 1996, the crew, you know, apparently quickly got the cast together for a second bite at the young, glamorous, dangerous Triad Apple. And uh, uh, this, uh, I don't know if you could, because I, I don't know Teddy Boys, the comics, I don't know if Andrew Lau and uh, writer Manfred Wong took episodes from uh, from the uh, manga and put into this one. But uh, originally, uh, the first one was a sort of live-action adaptation of uh, the property, at the very least, uh, Teddy Boy. And that made uh, $22 million uh, uh, Hong, Kong, uh, Hong Kong dollars at the box office. Uh, uh, rather, the second one made $22 million, and the first one made slightly below that. So the interest was still there. But... These actors, Paul, they, they were busy. They were, were becoming increasingly busy. So, But they still managed to get uh, the core back uh, and uh, make the core intact. Uh, and they managed to do that for at least four Young and Dangerous movies. M- maybe after the second one was successful, all made sure they had a gap in their schedule. But uh, as far as I can see, though, they were all in the first Four and then Jordan Chan seemingly was not in five, but then came back for six, which is uh, the movie Born to Be King, and he was also in his own spin-off. There were also different spin-offs for other characters, such as Anthony Wong's, and there were send-ups of the triad uh, trope. So the Hong Kong cinema landscape of uh, 1996 uh, was uh, crowded uh, with uh, triad movies, but. Uh, Andrew Love, the director, still had a grasp on on an audience and this commercial formula. And uh, also, uh, two years later, that would include uh, another comic book adaptation in the form of Storm Riders, which I haven't seen. But So, it might be a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you think, based on the success of combining Ikin Cheng, Andrew Lau, and even comic book adaptations, who was the allure there? You think, was it the material? Was it Ikin? Was it the director? If you were to uh, take a shot in the dark in terms of that. Well, I mean, that's a, it's an interesting question. I, I came to these... I want to say later on video rather than seeing them uh, directly in the cinema when they were coming out. But initially I wasn't a big fan of them. I liked them later because as I learned more about them and learned more about the comic books and saw the structure that they were using, uh, I came to appreciate them more. But when you look at the release schedule, it's interesting because it's 1996. This is a year before the handover. Their tensions are high. You've had Tiananmen, uh, years earlier, a lot of people leaving Hong Kong, so there, you know, there's been an exodus of talent and money and, and things like that. And so this is like the year before, and you have something like this come about as a hit really with young people, you know, who are perhaps feeling a lot of mixed feelings about their own future. And so this is something that comes out. The comic is already, you know, a pretty popular item, 
and the film the first film comes out and it does for what is essentially a somewhat low cost entry you know production uh, makes a lot of money you get a second one two months later <laughs> so i'm thinking pretty early on they kind of realized that they had a hit and they needed to run with it as quickly as possible you were still in this area of you know high intensity productions where you know the, the bigger name actors people like Andy Lau Jackie Chung and others were making multiple movies per year you know and a lot of people were working hard in the run up to 97 I think again because of that anxiety and that sense of not knowing what's going to come after so here you have this and I think Eakin wasn't a super big name at the time you know I think he had been on TV dramas and he'd, he'd done some stuff but I think this kind of really helped launch his popularity. And later he'd go on to do, as you mentioned, other comic book properties. He gets associated with Stormwriters. He also gets perhaps incorrectly associated with the Feel 100% series. It's everybody's fault in that one, <laughs> really. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, you look at this, it's so part one in January of that year, part two in, was it March, part three in June. So the first three entries into this series within the span of six months. Um, so they were just cranking these. And I think in part with this second one, you see aspects of a really rushed production, um, which which we'll touch on. But even so, later in the year, you get, um, I think in August, right, you have Herman Yao's kind of take on it with War of the Underworld, where it's, you know, the, the title is called, it's not Guakzai, the, the, the same intellectual property, but it's called uh, Hong Hing Zai, right? So it's still making reference to the Hong Hing gang, and it stars Tony Lung and Jordan Chan. They're in different roles, but kind of the same roles, right? So, you know, it's just a massive year for this kind of movie. And then in the years that follow, you get, you know, more of it. I think by the th third one, they'd kind of peaked. Uh, I think the third one didn't do quite as financially well as this one, but it was still up there. But by the fourth one, they were down, I think, to like 15 million. And then, you know, the, the later ones were doing less and less. So I think they kind of really tapped out the market um, early on here in 1996. Do you think he, he, uh, over the years then, uh, can do, do you think uh, his audience appeal got stronger so his name could could generate box office uh, more effectively uh, by the time you reach his special effects uh, uh, opuses with Andrew Lau? I think so, and uh, but also I think he strategically moved himself away from these roles and went into things like Feel 100% to try and make a somewhat divisive break from the Chan Honam character, right? And and to sort of position himself as a leading man for all seasons, if you will, you know. And and we do get him again later in other trad roles like. Um, I think Goodbye, Mr. Cool, uh, we've talked briefly about and uh, other stuff. And and as you mentioned, you know, the boys have had kind of a reunion of sorts. And they've had musical reunions before. Whenever Eakin would roll out an, an annual concert, he'd usually get a couple of the guys on stage to sing, you know, some of the throwback themes and things. Um, but this year they kind of got most of the crew together to do uh, uh, what they call a reunion film, even though it's not a, a triad film. It's a heist movie, right? It's 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 a heist movie, um, but they do make callbacks to um, these films. Hey, do you have any tattoos? Well, let me show you. <laughs> <laughs> the 
the the main thing I think that's happened is in the in the new millennium, after you know after the handover ninety seven, you you still get triad films and I think Wang Jing films that touch on this genre. Um, that are callbacks to the older films, but the standards have changed, censorship has changed. So a lot of times, if you're doing a trad film, it has to be a pre-97 film, because now that China's taken over, you can't have bad guys kind of a thing. But you get other films like, of course, Infernal Affairs, which you guys have covered, but also more specifically, I think, Election. Um, Election 1 and 2 really changed the tone of the triad film in sort of the post-millennium and moved away from the teddy boy aspect of it. And and so you've had a couple of reboots. I think there's um, one with William Chan called Triads, if I remember the, the title correctly. And then you actually had a young, young and Dangerous reboot called Young and Dangerous Reloaded with Heem Law in the Eakin role. And, you know, they were not terrible. They were okay. If you If you're somebody who enjoys the the triad genre, there's enough meat on both of those to find things that are enjoyable and some callbacks to classic actors who make cameos and things, but it's still narratively following a lot of the same kind of plot devices. Yeah, I would agree on that. I saw Triad uh, and um, the same director did, uh, Reloaded, uh, Daniel Chan, but Triad was fine for what it was and uh, I was okay with that. Um, it had a little bit of bite, so that that was certainly okay. And, and as you mentioned with election, it wasn't funny or um, this uh, glorifying process uh, anymore because uh, it, it got ugly. They they used the category free rating uh, not just for the the triad signage and content, but also the violence was ugly, and uh, the uh, the sort of uh, power struggle was was ugly. But the, it, it's amusing to look at the fact that this came out so soon after one. And I mean, uh, filming can get going quickly in Hong Kong, especially at this time, uh, making cheaper productions fast. Uh, and uh, again, I, I'm just I'm just guessing that the cast was getting increasingly popular. So have you ever heard anything about if they were planning multiple movies or is your take that they rushed to get this out because they saw the returns and they got together as much as they could, as many as they could, and tried to align schedules as best they could. Yeah, I mean, I've never read anything specifically to the effect that they had planned out to do three over the course of six months. What I kind of know in terms of how the how pre-production and post-production and all of that works, especially in the Hong Kong process leads me to believe that they wouldn't have planned that far ahead, especially not knowing if the first film was going to be a success. And this is just my best guess, especially for the time period. Because again, this first the first film comes out in January 96. The second film is in March. And you've got Chinese New Year films in that period. So to really push a production through during that period kind of to me says they saw they had a big hit and they just wanted to try and reduplicate it as quickly as possible maybe that first weekend was the telltale sign that uh, we need we need to get it started right away even if they didn't believe it pre-release uh, you know it can't be easy even if you put something together quickly because you need to get schedules in line and you get to if you want your core back then you you can't recast the entire lot what i can sense from young and dangerous too is that they almost got it fully aligned but not quite because if anyone was fully available it was jordan chan therefore we're gonna center it around him away from the boys for at least two or three reels that will free up our schedule and 
that's not a bad thing, but I, I can sense that's the uh, compromise because they couldn't get everybody for a 90 minute extravaganza where everybody's on screen at the same time all the time. So that happens with movies, of course, and it's just because I looked at it a little bit more carefully and I can see that, yeah, some of them were busy, uh, less busy than others, and some are more busy than others, and uh, that's what uh, we get here. I don't, I don't remember if Free had them all in it uh, through and through, and they made sh- make sure to book them for me to shoot. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that, I suppose, but... Um, I guess that should lead us into a quick opinions uh, if um, getting the boys together but not uh, for a full movie all uh, and everybody on screen at the same time as was the case with the first one. And the thing is, I didn't really like the first one. I, I think uh, it's, it's sort of standard cookie cutter, triad stuff and I, I think the glorification of uh, the triad lifestyle in that one is a problem for me but that's just me, I'm not saying everybody needs to be on that uh, side. But I think taking away part of the young and mixing it up with the old heads of the triads, uh, moving location to Taiwan and expanding on expanding on that triad world and its effect on politics makes for a more interesting template. And it's all watchable yet unremarkable because it is Andrew Lau after all. He, he does the talking narrative well enough, Paul, but it's pretty lackluster when it comes to the dangerous of it all. But I do appreciate the... Um, the that storyline the the more the veterans of the triads and how chicken reacts to all of that that's a little bit better than i was expecting there, there's a definite tonal shift um when it goes to the, the taiwan section which is if you remember from the the first film there's a period where chicken has to go off into hiding and so a lot of this is supposed to be what's happening when he's when he's kind of off in hiding before he comes back and some of the connections he makes and so we do get, you know, quite a few cameos as a result. We've got a very young Moses Chan here as a big leader's bodyguard in Taiwan. Um, you see also um, uh, Blackie Ko as an, another member who's, I guess he's like a cousin to uh, Jordan Chan. This is where some of the unevenness for me comes because there are some moments where Jordan Chan is on the street and he's just kind of talking with Blackie Co and it's sync sound and they're just going back and forth and it's it's very kind of fun and and natural and then in other segments it shifts over to uh, post dubbed stuff because they're kind of shifting in and out um, between Cantonese and Putonghua or Taiwanese at times it's just, it, you know the audio quality is very uneven we're even expecting sync sound for, for considering the series and and it, that, that it was such a quick production isn't that still a quite a surprise that they went professional to that degree where it's actually mixed Cantonese and Mandarin well it was it was a surprise and it was but it also made me realize that when they bring in another character like Ching Mi Yao who always looks great on screen but is completely overdubbed and and terribly so with the canned audio that they have for whoever's dubbing her it just really stood out you know, rather than having the whole thing kind of post-dubbed where I can, you know, if a whole film is, is post-dubbed, I can eventually forget about it and lose myself to it. But because this kind of jumped back and forth, mm. it made it stand out in my mind a bit more. Is it still, is it more interesting to follow the adults instead of the, the young and dangerous of it all this time around? Or were you missing the adventures of uh, Chan Honam and, and so forth? No, I think, you know, it's it because it goes 
into the politics a little bit more. It's a bit more interesting. It also pretty much picks up right from the end of one. So what you have is you have... Yay, Kosovo Bay. We got it. Yeah, you have a, have a, pa- a power vacuum in, in Hong Hing society. And, you know, so they bring back people like Simon Yam and, um, you know, some of the other, other key characters who you saw in one. And they've got to f- figure out how to fill the power vacuum. So, you know, that plotting for me you know, is, is kind of interesting. And again, we've seen, you know, we see that here. We've seen that in other films too. Uh, well, of course we see it in election and, you know, so that's something that's been commonly done, but it's, it's much more interesting than having the boys kind of out on the street, beating people up and, or going into clubs and sticking their fingers in everybody's face. Yeah. We, we, which is how it opens. So it almost seems like, Oh, it's, it's, it's repeat. Uh, we got a montage from the first movie with the beating uh, using lawn chairs and everybody jumping in the air going, yay, we're number one, we're young and dangerous. So it's not a friendly opening for me in terms of, oh, here we go again, really. But then it cuts to Taiwan quite quickly and uh, it's, it, it is unexpected and then also welcome because I was... I was more interested in the adventures of Chicken because I like Jordan Chan a lot more versus the other performers in the movie and in the first movie. So this was uh, welcome, even though they get in a little uh, section with Ikin Cheng adjusting to his new life as a leader and they're trying to find the right uh, wardrobe for him. So it's a it's it's a little bit on the light side. Uh, I, I guess it humanizes them to a degree where this is a new role. He's the one that needs to grow up maybe quicker than the other ones, you know, maybe quicker than Jerry Lamb, who I I, I still don't know what his true purpose in, is in this series, uh, Jerry Lamb. I'm not knocking him as a performer, but it, he just seems like he's the best friend that hangs around a little bit. Yeah, he's he's the low man on the totem pole, you know. He's 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 the quiet brother. But they don't they don't make fun of him as such. It's not like, yeah, let, that that's the uh, that's the spot for the fat jokes. No, they don't even go there. So I, I was always curious like what what is it about his uh, he clearly has a need in the to be there in terms of um, completing the group. But um in these three movies I can't remember any distinct moments where they give him something um to work with. Maybe that comes later in the series. Uh, so I'm gonna hold, hold my breath until then. But but it is more interesting as he switches to Taiwan, as Paul said, having uh, sync sound almost all throughout the movie. It seems like Jordan Chan switches between Cantonese and Mandarin, which is nice. So they don't have him uh, partly uh, post dub, uh, and uh, they bring in this uh, the fact that the real life does touch upon uh, the tried lifestyle, whether they're aware of it or not. Uh, maybe this is in the Hong Kong section, but uh, actor and director Lee Lik Chi has a cameo as a as a social counselor of some sorts, and he's there to schmooze, and he doesn't know he's actually at a party where there's pretty much just triads there. But it gives a sense of um, that you know the unlawful and lawful world they're they're closer together than you might think and and the cut to taiwan literally is about the, the fact that uh, the kelly lie character loy kung is running for office and i'm not sure if that is a total fabrication or if that's ever happened but it still makes for you know it's not standardized triad plotting which i've seen my share of and expect and that's why I think it was refreshing enough to have more of a talky narrative. Not a lot of confrontations and violence and blurry camera shooting at all like in one. Andrew Lau really goes for a talking narrative. And it's not like it's David Mamet or Aaron Sorkin, you know, engrossing in terms of dialogue. But I was focusing 
pretty decently on that and with interest. And even though that leads to, you know, the takeover in Macau being sort of standard, because uh, the Kelly Lai character has a fiendish plan. But it makes for such a more interesting time, I think, to have uh, veterans commanding the screen a little bit more versus the young ones and having the young ones react to this. Because Chicken isn't, uh, isn't used to this world. He uh, has to go with the flow and appear confident at least paul but he but he he has to absorb and learn a lot of stuff on the fly and for half a movie at least that that's that stuff is pretty interesting i wouldn't have minded if this was this was the actual chicken spin-off movie in disguise you know but uh, obviously they cut back to to hong kong so uh, for me anyway i don't know how you feel but the, the taiwanese sections they they remain strong enough to make this a solid recommendation and then later on the hong kong stuff and the triatropes uh, bring it to an unremarkable level but still watchable level so uh, was it that for you for following through on the taiwanese sections and chickens sort of reactions to the world as the young one in the adult world was that interesting enough for you yeah and i think it's the right amount of time because at about the point when they do kind of switch back to what's going on in Hong Kong and Macau was about the time I was saying, okay, I kind of want to, I kind of want things to get back to the, the, some of the other characters and, and see what's happening there with the, you know, the, the election and, and, and that stuff. So I think it was the right amount of time and whether or not they had to do that, like you said, because it was a rush production and they could only get Jordan and Ching me and, and, uh, for a little bit, Moses Chan for those scenes and Blackie Go. Maybe it, it seems that could be the case, but, uh, you know, it works for me in terms of that kind of bouncing the narrative around. Even though his connection, though, to Ching Miao, I think we won't spoil it because it's a major spoiler towards the end. But uh, I think, uh, I don't know, it's semi-interesting because she she doesn't seem like the most angelic person ever out there she's using her sexuality to a degree to manipulate the kid but um i don't know maybe it would have been more effective like this um this first true lesson for a young one would have been more affecting had we had sing sound perhaps but uh i think the ultimate sort of um, impact the dark impact on jordan chan based on their interaction him and ching miao's character Maybe that would have been more effective um, had we had some sync sound and also the the very last uh, dark act is uh, so woefully depicted that uh, it's almost borderline parody. But um, <laughs> um, um, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it, obviously. It, it almost seems like we've got 10 seconds to shoot this massive dramatic impact. Shoot it, shoot it, shoot it. God damn it, we're going to leave. Uh, but uh, anyway, we, we won't spoil that. But they... To, to have that uh, focus on just one and his lessons is not a bad idea because clearly also they they were building a universe so maybe they felt very much comfortable to veer away a little bit from the Hung Hing boys as a whole and see this uh, one of them getting a major lesson in terms of um, what the trial world holds. It's not, it isn't just clubbing and lawn chairs and waving fingers in each other's faces as... Uh, as you said, so um, I, I'm not sure I ever asked you in terms of like uh, Andrew Lau, do you think he's an exciting director or not? We obviously know he can co-direct very well, and there's a few solo movies of, of his that are quite good, but um, I've never found him to be a remarkable director as such based on the ones I've seen, but I, I think I got a newfound appreciation for the fact that he is more than comfortable just shooting dialogue-driven trial cinema. It's okay here. I don't know if his forte is actually the end of the 90s run 
when he started mixing in special effects if that is a sign of a director that wow he was made for storm rider so what's your sort of general take on andrew lauer if he fits triad stories or special effects you know i think he works on some levels for a lot of things and on other levels you know for me uh, now he you know he's not a big draw when i hear okay it's an andrew lau movie it's not something that makes me super excited but it can be hit or miss i mean i'm of the camp that came to storm riders without having any exposure to the comic and Mm -hmm. that that experience knocked my socks off when i saw it for the first time because it felt like what a lot of films had tried to do in terms of getting close to manga or manhua style you know, storytelling, which for Chinese comics is very different from Japanese manga, um, the way that they do their art and the way that they do their storytelling, especially for period or fantasy style wushu or kung fu pieces. It's got its own kind of unique artistic aesthetic, I would say. And to see when I saw Stormer, I was like, oh, this is this is great. This is, you know, they're they're getting close. It's by no means a perfect film. But I do know that a lot of people who were fans of the comic did not like it at all for, you know, lots of reasons. And this is this is true of most comic book movies or movies that are adapted from books or other things, you know. Um, But I think there was a pretty large vocal minority that that really didn't care for it. But um, I I, I really liked it. And uh, I watched it many, many times (laughs) when once I got a hold of the DVD for all that they've done in sort of the follow ups, because you've got... um, Storm, Storm Warriors that was done as a sequel, and then there's, I think, two animated films that fill in the the narrative gaps between the live actions. I liked all those, but none of them surpassed my experience uh, of the, that first one. So, and I, you know, I think Egan worked, and we talk about him kind of developing on beyond this because I think he does the feel 100% movies later in the year of of uh, 96 for for Eakin himself kind of being a draw I think you know because I think that movie made like also like 20 million that that first one and so I, I think it showed that maybe the argument there is that he was somebody who could pull people out to the cinema more so than the the stylizations of the director uh, or you know Andrew Lau but for me personally Andrew Lau can be hit or miss you know um, and you know just d- depending on the work he's not again he's not somebody when I hear Oh, there's a new Andrew Lau movie coming. Not something that gets me really internally excited. It's going to be more about the cast or, or what is the story per se. As, as I've mentioned before, I'm much more in the camp of, you know, there was a time when Wong Jing movies made, you know, I heard Wong Jing was making a movie. That made me excited. Not so much anymore. Um, again, it depends on the, the title, the genre, the content, that kind of thing. So, so here, as Andrew Lau is uh, not being very flashy, is it uh, is it tolerable or even good direction as he proceeds through the talky storytelling? I think it's fine. Um, there are points though where there are com- some narrative jumps where it just really you do get the sense that it's a rushed production. That that might be an incorrect reading on my part. It it might just be down to bad editing, or it might again just be because they you know, didn't have um, a good script supervisor or something, but there are just moments where it feels like there's a, they move from one scene to another and it just feels like there's a big gap. The one that really sticks out for me is in sort of the very final act where they're in this big casino, which is part of the 
the final act plot, they're inside, and then there's an altercation, and then suddenly they're like outside, and it's like they're all meeting again, like they just haven't seen each other five seconds ago. And it just felt really weird. It felt like there it's, was... It's whoosh it's store selling, man. You, yeah. got, you got to compress it now. Whew, what yeah, an adventure like, we just had. <laughs> it's like, you know, back to the zoo warriors from the Magic Mountain moment, right? Like, oh, we were just here. No, we're, we were, we've were we been gone for weeks. What are you talking about? Hey, uh, let's address a little elephant in the room here. The shootout in, uh, in the Taiwanese restaurant. Complete ripoff of A Better Tomorrow or... Uh, complete. Com- complete. <laughs> complete i mean that's all that's all i was thinking and i had totally forgotten about that scene and i'm thinking oh come on are you kidding because it starts even when he's reading a paper in taiwan there's a shot in a better tomorrow where chai fat is smoking and he's reading that uh Tilong's character has been caught yeah i think it's in taiwan at that point but anyway it starts like that and he's looking cool he walks away and then the, the restaurant shootout happens and it's amazing how transparent but in a bad way it is here because it literally is jordan chan Opening the door, not in slow motion, mind you, but opening the door, he's a stranger there and no one expects him and then he blows away a a political opponent. And not that I'm going to go on a crusade against Andrew Lau because God knows I like ripoffs in Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies, but when it's done with sort of... At, at least in other movies, such as Chu and Ping's movies, Island of Fire and Golden Queen's Commando, it's executed with some kind of fun energy. This is just lazy, man. And I don't know if you caught it. There's a in the earliest scene where you know they're dressing uh, Chan Honam, you know Ikin's character in different attire. They they make a verbal reference. They put a long trench coat on him, and he's got some glasses. And they say, "Oh, you know." Uh, his English name is Mark. Cute, cute though. Yeah, I think they're poking some fun. And but yeah, the, the that whole sequence, you're just thinking, yeah, this is you know exactly what they're doing if if you've seen that. So and I don't mind Jordan Chan in action. He proved himself um, both in the first movie to a degree. That there's some beats here that shows he's he can be a good you know edgy action hero. God of Gambus Free, the early stage was really a breakout performance in that regard, but he, he can't get the pulse of the movie going on his own because no. the, this is just uh, uh, ripping off things here. Sp- sp- uh, speaking of getting the pulse of the movie going, uh, Anthony Wong bursts onto the screen and uh, makes a mark on the movie. He is uh, the ugly Kwan of this movie, I suppose, uh, but is it a lazy rerun of ugly Kwan, do you think, or does Anthony make uh, nose-picking legendary Taifei. There's, there's a movie called Legendary Taifei, but uh, I, I certainly see him as legendary in some shape or form. But uh, is, he, um, is he good or bad for the movie or, or too comedic? No, I think he's good. I mean, as you said, this is the sort of greasy, sweaty, <laughs> ugly period of Anthony Wong. And, you know, he's, a, he's an actor who can radically transform himself. If you're familiar with this side of him from a lot of, you know, a lot of these period movies, I don't know if he was just he seems like a working man's actor. You know, if you give him a role, he's going to take it. And if you say you got to be sweaty and ugly and crude in this role, he's going to do it. I've never met him, but that's in interviews and things. That's how he seems to be like in terms of his work ethic. You you can sometimes see when he's doing it for the money and when he's having fun. I, I can sense he's having fun here. But you look at something again, like, you know, of course, he's very well known for his role in Infernal Affairs um, I like to look at, uh, I think it's uh, his role in Princess D, where he's oh, an, a dance God. instructor. Yes. And, you know, I mean, he can radically transform himself. And, and I had the good fortune to actually see him do a stage drama in Hong Kong. And he was amazing, you know. So it's it's a lot of people, 
if you've only seen him from this time period or the Ebola syndromes or, you know, the the, the human story. pork chop stuff, you know, yeah. You know, if you just know him from that, you have this sense of him as this kind of actor, but he's so much more than that, I think. But he works really well here, especially with how they kind of... I, I do think he's a placeholder for the Ugly Kwan. They said, well, we need a new Ugly Kwan, and he wasn't a character who appeared in the first one. But I think that the way they use him here is fine, and the fact that he can go on beyond this, because, you know, uh, there is more, as you mentioned... He gets a spin-off. He gets spin-off. I heard spin-off that's series. terrible, though. Legendary Typhoon. I heard that was terrible, but it's 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 very low budget. I think I only ever found it on VCD, um, but I actually kind of liked it for what it was. Um, and you know, again, as sort of an extension, and and it's more of a prequel telling of his character, from what I recall. It's kind of a an extension in name only. There's no real big name cameos from this series in it, but you know, I enjoyed it just for him more so than anything else. So. For this film, I think he's one of the things that that stands out. You did mention Jordan Chan, and I think Jordan Chan is somebody who got a lot of recognition from these films as Chicken, as sort of the enforcer character. That becomes kind of his, you know, all all these guys, Eakin character, um, the Jerry Lamb character, they all get sort of stereotyped into this, into these roles. And these roles carry over, you know, into their, their most recent uh, pairing in Golden Job. Do do they do that by the way, um, completely consciously as a sort of a wink to the audiences, or or, or is it just mo- little moments here and there, and they're making a completely new movie mostly? I mean, it's a new movie mostly, but it again, it's it's moments. It's they're in characters that you recognize. I'm called Rooster. <laughs> <laughs> I, his name his, uh, Jordan's character is called Volcano, you know. But it's you know he's got the attitude and and the short fuse and. And all of that that you recognize from this series. But you've talked about him in a recent podcast of yours on your George Lamb series with Queer Story, right? And the role he has there. Movies that I like to, you know, think of him beyond this role are things like He's a Woman, She's a Man, which I think he's amazing in. And that series, um, he does a later series, with a later movie with Candy Lowe called... Uh, oh, uh, yeah, herbal tea. I'm always thinking of the Chinese title, you know, man above, woman below, and 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 that's just a, such a wonderful small local movie, and he's great in it. And he actually he's he's like a working stunt guy, but he's making fun of some of the stuff he did during this era, early on. And it's he's he's very very versatile, and I think he's often overlooked because he's you know he's often in a supporting role in a lot of things. But he's got such a wonderful range. Also considering that he sometimes plays it very loud and broad, it's amazing that he maintains yeah. the balance of... He never becomes annoying to me. Even in a queer story, he doesn't play... Uh, he isn't stereotypically homosexual or anything. But he is loud. He is a drama queen to a degree. But he's, he he manages to just find the right balance. Obviously working with a director. But he, he can go for it, is my point. And I always appreciate that uh, loudness could be a tool. In, in his hand obviously he can underplay yeah. too and be funny i mean a, a year i think in 97 a, a year after this he does a hong kong adaptation of a novel from japan i think the author is banana yoshimoto if correctly or yoshimoto banana um called kitchen where he kind of plays uh you know um the cr- cross dresser or you know i i think it's a uh now I'm blanking on the effing name. Uh, there, there is a cross-dressing character played by 
Lokasing. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Lokasing. Lokasing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm getting their their. But but he's great in that. I mean, he, you know, again, he has this ability to really be a chameleon and just adapt to a wide variety of roles. Where again, you compare him with somebody like Eakin, and not this isn't a slight against Eakin, but Eakin is pretty much firmly rooted in that handsome guy, leading man kind of thing. And even even as he's emerged into more mature roles of late, and I'm thinking of, you know, he had a really great a really great role with um, Chrissy Chow a few years ago, and he's he's been in um, My Wife Is 18, you know, sort of these cheesy comedies where he's playing like a sort of just a middle-aged teacher he's kind of left that young cool image but he's still kind of in that leading handsome man mode you know what i'm saying but more appealing as a performer though he's not as stiff as he was um back in the day you know back here he was more pretty face slash maybe not given material but still it took a few years for for him to emerge in my eyes as someone who uh, could be uh, more interesting Despite you looking at Ikim, but sometimes he hid in roles. In rule number one, he uh, he was distinctively um, heavier. You know, he gained some weight for that one. More of a worn-down detective. It was a horror movie we've shown you. But uh, speaking of him and the character, I feel, I feel he's given very little to do here as the slightly more grown-up Chan Ho Nam and uh, you know his uh, desire to marry. Uh, uh, Jiggy Lai's character, what's her effing name? I'm, I'm blanking on all Smarty. Smarty is her name yeah. here. Blanking on everything today. All of that is um, not that I was looking for it because I know he wasn't that good in movie one, but clearly for a while it feels like Ikin is uh, not given very much to do and isn't the focus of the movie. That means that Andrew Lau, when he cranks the tragedy that's in this movie, not going to spoil it, that doesn't work at all for me. It's 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 so basic and, and almost... Um, calculated that um and because he's kept these two characters that are connected out of the movie for so long i i didn't feel that much at all for 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 the tragedy that happens and then the loosely shot hong kong street level violence isn't any special uh, anything special or disturbingly realistic as they crank violence and darkness uh, and so, so i didn't feel a furthering of um, the hong king boys where I would be genuinely interested to just turn on free right now. I want to see the continuation because it's just basic stuff, man. And uh, I, maybe it's felt a little bit more because I was enjoying earlier sections. And then when we get back to Hong Kong, despite Anthony Wong having it up, as it go, gets to the end and everything needs to be resolved, I didn't care one iota really about uh, any conflict that might happen because no one here is really apt at depicting you know everything coming to a head uh, to uh, and they're reaching like a dark violent impact because this world is dark as we've uh, seen and even as i hinted at there's a final very recognizable movie moment where two characters have to resolve something violently and tragically it's so softly done when another character shoots another character right and that was almost borderline embarrassing how they concluded that storyline and I, I don't think it was fair towards the performer in this case um, to get uh, such a weak ass uh, send-off uh, not a send-off but a, a story send-off uh, it's a better film because the, the the conflict of it all is less street level it's it's it isn't the uh, the fun running around as in the first one but uh, it ends weakly i think uh, which sort of made me revert into my shell of well do I want to pursue free for work, for podcast work? Sometime, but not now. 
uh, I would rather like uh, find the other chicken spin-off movie and have a full movie with him. Let's see how that works. Uh, so uh, I'll I'll, conclu- I'll conclude my notes there. But I wanted to ask: uh, did, did did you feel um, some of the main characters, including Smarty, uh, was uh, dearly missing from the second one? Well, I mean, you, you know, yeah, you you kind of know something like that's going to happen at some point because you've got to get your quote unquote main protagonist angry about something right you know but still it doesn't sound like you thought that was a effective and like heart-wrenching or anything it wasn't and you know it, it's like again part of me wonders if it was kind of i don't if i don't know if it was pulled from the comic directly or if it was kind of written in because they only had her for a day or two because you know there's not a lot with her i think there's like one kind of major scene between the two of them that happens right before you know, the, the incident, we will call it. And then, you know, there's a shot of her later and, and that's it. You know, she's not really in it. And you do get, as you mentioned, right at the start, they're throwing you all these flashbacks from the first movie, you know, to remind you that these people are important and you saw a lot of them last time, but you might not see that much of them this time. Again, on the idea of the comic aspect, too, I think there's only one comic page panel transition that I remember seeing. Yeah, one or two. Where, where they show that, and they, I remember them using that to more of an effect in the first film. And again, here, that kind of signals to me that maybe they just didn't have the time to crank that out. Yeah, to draw something, uh, draw something new. I think uh, one is even reused because it's the last image of the first one is a comic book panel when they all go, yeah, I got Causeway Bay. And I, I think the same image in, is in this one. So <laughs> they reused it to save it, I suppose. Um, my favorite Anthony Wong moment, by the way, because uh, it just says everything about the character. There, there's a confrontation in a hospital. Someone is uh, badly injured, and he's there to stir up uh, shit. And um, he uh, is told that you need to back off, dude. Back off. And he said, well, I'll back off. And what do they do as respectful men? They just start playing uh, football with a Coke can. They're in the same hallway. Annoyingly so. (laughs) And I thought that was just Anthony just being so in tune with the character. This character won't ever shut up. Won't ever show an ounce of respectful behavior. Because, um, you know, maybe his um, way of respecting someone is to not pick his nose in front of them. Maybe that's his telltale sound of, I'm, I'm respecting you now. My finger is nowhere near my nose. But uh, otherwise, I'm going to stir up shit wherever I go, including in the hospital where, where someone is uh, struggling for uh, struggling to stay alive. So um, he, he made me happy. He didn't stray necessarily in, into like comedy or parody um, mode or anything because I think it Ugly Kwan was sort of the same. You know, he even uh, yeah. had oral sex performed uh, to him uh, while after he's identified the corpse of uh, one of his uh, brothers and then he asks his mistress to go down on him right there so the first movie sort of said that these characters are who they are <laughs> deal with it and that was all fun but they do they do conclude that scene with with a bit of comedy when they bring in you know spencer lamb who is seemingly a constant through i think most of these films as, as he comes to a, a a small resolution that involves a shoe into a crotch, right? <laughs> a little bit better than the first one, but n- not a series that's taken off by Young and Dangerous 2 or anything. And I don't remember free improving matters a lot, but I think we get Sandra in that one, and I do. I kind of look forward to at least uh, seeing how they deal with her before she gets her own excellent spin-off movie, which was the first 
uh, way I saw Sister 13 was in her spin-off movie, Portland Street Blues. I won awards. <laughs> you know, so yeah, Young and Dangerous seemed like, wow, the original movies must be awesome if this one can win awards. But nope, they just were better. Um, a Young and Dangerous cameo, of course, in that one, uh, Portland Street Blues, including from Ugly Kwan. So that was all fun. So uh, I'll conclude it right there. Anything else you want to say before we talk uh, if uh, this movie is available to buy or not? Uh, the one thing that I'll say, too, is that as you watch this and you see kind of the overarching plot, again, it involves the acquisition of a a big new casino in Macau. It's just interesting to think that, you know, because this period was still old Macau and they talk about the, the Lisboa casino at one point and none of that matters now because of all the new foreign casinos that have been built further south in Macau, like the Sands. Uh, over on the Kotai Strip, and there, there's a couple there, like the, I think one's called the Galaxy. All these huge kind of foreign investment casinos that have really sort of overshadowed all these original kind of Chinese-built uh, Macau, you know, uh, Chinese tycoon casinos uh, of this era. And so, you know, just from a sense of progress and a sense of the, sort of the historical thing, it's like, that casino doesn't matter, you know. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's it's going to be gone. It's not going to be relevant in the in in two decades. So you guys are going to be uh, overshadowed by the the big casino players of the world. But it, you know, it is nice to see them kind of out on the street in Macau for some of the shots. And I know the first one went to Macau for a little bit, but here again, you are, as you said, it, expanding the universe by branching out into Taiwan and kind of bringing the Taiwan politics and and the gangs there over. Into this, and I think for me that's a, an interesting enough expansion of the world, and it's also again great to see some of the comic book-like extension of the narrative from the first film. So again, you know, you can look forward to seeing people like, you know, Simon Yam and uh, other again the other cameos we mentioned. Um, Lee Su Kay is here. He, you know, it's interesting because they're doing a vote, and he's like so pro Honam, and yet it's like. You just saw Honam beating the smack out of him in the flashback scene from the first movie. It's like, did you did you forget that they beat you up? But uh, you know, I guess all's all's fair in love and uh, triad society, right? It's triad politics, so you you sink to lows sometimes, you know. Uh, I I would say that if you were somebody who saw the first film and thought, meh, I don't need any more. You don't really need to continue on. But again, I would argue that if you can power through to get to the point where you've seen Anthony Wong in this and you like Anthony Wong and you want to track down the legendary Taifei, um, you can do that or try to get to the point to where Sandra Moon's character is introduced. Uh, but at the very least, if you don't want to do that, if that's too much work, go watch Portland Street Blues. And as for availability of uh, Young and Dangerous 2, this was a Maya title that's now out of stock or possibly out of print. Um, I'm not sure that DVD reused a cinema print with uh, burned-in subtitles like the first one, but I have a feeling it did because based on the cover art that's out there, it seems to suggest that Maya put it out early in the life of DVD, just like they did with Young and Dangerous 1. And they never did upgrade that one or the second one to anamorphic widescreen or remastered it like they did with certain catalog titles. Uh, since, since no great print exists or, or is in print over there in Asia and Hong Kong, I, I do recommend getting the uh, UK DVD box set, uh, which contains the first three movies. Uh, it's not great DVD quality, but it is still cheap, uh, and all movies, um, I know the first two, uh, and probably the third, 
have newly translated but they have permanent subtitles so you can't turn them off but uh, it really enhances the movie to have a nice little translation on it uh, and it's also available for cheap on for instance the amazon marketplace uh, looking at uh, the availability now on ebay versus when we did uh, young and dangerous one there is a ebay listing for a box set released in malaysia i think by speedy that claims all six films i.e young and dangerous one through six are in the set and they all have optional subtitles uh, speedy i believe is a legit company unless bootleggers use their logo and name so i'm not 100 percent sure that young and dangerous got a full maybe better looking dvd set but uh, uh, there is one available uh, six dvd set by speedy in malaysia so have a look at that one thing i do know isn't official is uh, a constant ebay listing because I, I found it the last time as well where you can buy a 12 dvd plus cd collection that contains the young and dangerous one through six but it also includes some of the spin-offs uh, but and it's very cheap so i, I doubt it's official because of that but also doubt it's official because all of these different young and dangerous movies and the spin-offs the hong kong rights belong to so many different companies so i doubt uh, they would be able to clear those rights plus no one releases dvd dvd collections that big officially of movies like this in hong kong and includes cds as well it just is kind of unheard of pick it up let us know how it's like uh, how it is but uh, that's uh, at least uh, listed that uh, they don't include the once upon a time and try to cite uh, spin-offs and i have a feeling why because it's so hard to get the fucking thing <laughs> you know you have to get a laser disc and record it onto a dvd burn it and print it and then put it out on ebay the other ones you could probably get on dvd and vcd so that's uh, I, I do remember the Taipei spin-off is probably in there because that had a DVD. So that goes into the 12 DVD plus CD collection. That's a too good to be true kind of experience. But um, so so if you ne- if you can't find your discs again, they're in storage. Then uh, you can um, complete it again, Paul, by buying this uh, massive collection of uh, yeah. movies and music. Do it for us, man. Do it for the podcast network. Take out a mortgage just to pay for the shipping. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're going to take a promo break, uh, listen to uh, one, of our, one of the promos from our friends in the podcasting community. And after that, we are going back to 1974 and what it was like when Hammer Films and Shaw Brothers teamed up. And the result was The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Van Helsing versus Dracula once again. And uh, we'll be back to tell you all about it. The following message is a paid advertisement for The Cult of Muscle podcast. The Cult of Muscle. You're either in it or you're dead. It's the dawning of a new age. The halls of Valhalla have been shuttered. The heroes of yore have either retreated to the shadows or taken to capering for the amusement of the small folk. Their past glory is a distant memory. The barbells have been torn from their once puma-strong grips. The beards shone from their square jaws, only to be transplanted onto flannel-clad, puny weaklings with fingers barely powerful enough to strum a ukulele. The time has come, my brothers, to restore order from the chaos. No longer will our heroes be forgotten. No longer will their great deeds be viewed through a foggy lens of irony. Hear now our rallying cry as we scream it from the mountaintops, as we bellow it from iTunes and Libsyn and Facebook. It's time to join the cult, my brothers. So don your cloaks and enter the cult of muscle. 
and welcome back and we conclude this episode with the review of the legend of the seven golden vampires from 1974 no connection to young and dangerous uh, it's just a random team up of movies uh, with some background uh, to add to it before we do the review because that's a relaxed way of working crafting podcasts by uh, picking out of the pile so that's how it works. Uh, a plot from IMDb of The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. While lecturing in China, Van Helsing, played by Peter Cushing, agrees to help seven kung fu trained siblings, led by David Chang, to reclaim their ancestral mountain village, uh, which is now the domain of seven powerful vampires and their army of undead slaves. And now Dracula is essentially <laughs> heading, uh, heading that army. Uh, the Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires uh, is co-produced by UK's Hammer Films and Hong Kong's Shaw Brothers. Um, and I, I'm a Hammer newbie, I still am. I mean, the movies are out there, so I shouldn't be, but I, I simply am. Because I haven't picked up uh, any of the Dracula uh, movies uh, that Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee were in. So excuse my ignorance in all this. Uh, but they, they were in part of their cycle of Dracula films uh, still. And it, it had reached the ninth movie by now. And also by now, Christopher Lee had put away the cape. And teeth. So Dracula is played by uh, actor John Forbes uh, Robertson for the brief moments uh, that he appears as Dracula. Veteran Hammer director Roy Ward Baker handled this movie and he was not set to direct initially. He was reportedly replacing director Gordon Hessler uh, a little while into the production. So Roy Ward Baker is the credited director but it seems... Um, unofficial word is that swordplay and martial arts uh, veteran director Chang Che of One-Armed Swordsman and Five Venoms and Blood Brothers, co-directed. And I don't know what you think, Paul, but in my eyes, it wouldn't be far-fetched that Hammer and Shaws wanted to ease the working flow between the Eastern and the Western cast uh, by having a local veteran present. Uh, you know, not just translators, but you know, to have uh, someone who has uh, worked with... Uh, the Hong Kong talent before to, to sort of ease the vision, you know? Any take on that in terms of uh, Chang Chia's unofficial credit here? Yeah, I think it's some of the things I read said that production was a challenge because of things like language barrier and different working styles. And I think that's understandable. In subsequent things I've seen, especially in some interviews where people like, I want to say, Jean Claude Van Damme and other actors have come to work in Hong Kong on more Hong Kong based productions, they've said, you know, how it's a very different work approach culturally. Uh, and that can be an adjustment. So you've got to kind of have to imagine when you've got crews on both sides, you know, sort of coming together, they're probably be beyond just the language barrier. There's a whole cultural aspect of filmmaking that can probably be a challenge to understand and overcome. And, and also, I think it feels like a Shaw Brothers movie, very much in sections, not just in the action sections, but uh, really, it feels assured, in a way, the way it captures um, these sets and this story. I'm thinking Roy Ward Baker was um, aided, to a degree here, to sort of make this vision work for both Shaw Brothers fans, maybe, and Hammer, Hammer Films fans, without uh, it seeming awkward or anything, so... On the conception of the film and why Shaw Brothers was a promising co-production partner, uh, son of uh, Hammer founder James Carreras and later studio executive himself uh, talked of that Hammer saw potential in the market share and impact that Kung Fu had in the early 70s. And uh, while he, he does hint that the idea might not have been great and uh, possibly due again to production issues, 
he does admit that he thinks the final product came out well in his eyes after all was said and done. And modern critique of the film leans towards this as well, with many readily admitting flaws are present, but that the enjoyment factor is high. This was also Peter Cushing's last appearance in a Hammer Dracula film, playing Van Helsing, as per usual. So uh, he added in him to uh, to make a final movie, and Christopher Lee uh, felt that uh, presumably, if he if Christopher Lee was in it from the beginning, then he felt like eight was enough. So you can't uh, argue against that, really, because uh, you know it's uh, how many can you, how much can you vary up. Uh, uh, vary up the formula then again chris lee had no problem uh, accepting uh, a little uh, vacation to hong kong back in the 60s when he made that movie five golden dragons that you and i covered on hollywood hong kong and he's not in it at all really he's a, <laughs> like, it's a glorified cameo and he had no problem going to hong kong and uh, you know but maybe here in 1974 he he didn't feel like uh, doing it again even though it would have meant a nice vacation so and I think he visited one more time, if memory serves, for one of the Fu Manchu films, but it was just for like maybe a few sequences. I, I think they did that in Hong Kong, or they might have done it just north of Hong Kong, um, but my memory is a bit sketchy on that. Uh, the Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires was not a box office success overall. Um, they actually, um, you know, we, we talked of uh, planning ahead with the Young and Dangerous movies. Uh, Hammer were planning ahead. They wanted to shoot the sequel in India, but this was shelled as a result of the low box office uh, tally of uh, seven, uh, The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. And it wasn't even exported to the US until 1979. Uh, and when that was done, it was renamed to The Seven Brothers Meet Dracula. And I'm going to stop there. The trailer is super amusing to this one, to this one if you watch the US trailer. Because they say, like, oh, no, 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 it's The Seven Brothers and their sister meet Dracula. So they always, and it's nice that they always include the sister, but obviously not in the title, of course. <laughs> it's a long title, but uh, it's amusing that they went out of their way in the trailer. Because there's a woman present as well. So it's the seven brothers and their sister meet Dracula. Uh, but this version had major edits uh, equating to about 10 minutes or so, maybe 15 minutes or so. And it shows. But it's, uh, it's a bit of a mess. But uh, we're going to go down memory lane with Paul because uh, this mess is what Paul um, experienced back in the day. Uh, this edit of the movie was included as a supplement on the Anchor Bay DVD of the film uh, back in the day, as well as on the Roan Laserdisc, which uh, Paul has in his possession. It's not hard to get, but I was like, hey, building a collection but not being able to watch your collection, that that should be a cue to donate your collection to someone who will watch it on the other <laughs> side of the world. Shipping costs, no worries. Like, can I borrow it for 20 years or so? <laughs> so, goddamn. But, but it's a cool edition, man, because uh, Ron, they, they put out some cool editions on Laserdisc. And that, that, that was the concept of that, that it has the original full version of The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires on one disc and on the other disc, The Seven Brothers Meet Dracula. And the DVD, as well as that Laserdisc, also contains uh, the sort of audio retelling slash uh, musical score uh, version of the film, uh, there because it's it's a piece of radio theater as uh, told by Van Helsing uh, Van Helsing's character and Peter Cushing therefore does a, uh, not the audio book of the film but it's a piece of radio theater lasting 40 minutes that summarizes the film as uh, told by Peter Cushing in Van Helsing mode 
and it's, it's a cool thing to have it's on the dvd there was a vinyl back in the day and it was also reissued on vinyl and cd uh, in like 2015 so you can still get that and it's a it's a fun experience if you um if you dig that sort of thing because it isn't quotes from the movie it's uh, completely new writing uh you know essentially a little uh, summary or a diary of uh, van helsing so it's pretty cool so let me ask you this then then uh, when you first saw this as the seven brothers meet dracula you you were kind of fond of the movie in this um, state, this shortened state. Yes, I was a young, naive boy who was basically accepting anything I was fed because I didn't know any better, right? And we we had we had VHS, and that was a thing, and and anything that was on that thing was was an amazing thing because prior to that, it was you were limited to watching stuff that was on TV, you know, on like late Sunday afternoons or something. My father was a big uh, Hammer fan, and he had introduced me to the, I want to say, the most of the Peter Cushing and, and, um, and Christopher Lee series. That was like a big thing for him. And so I watched those ad nauseum as a kid, and I really, you know, sort of got into them. But around the same time, I was watching a lot of, you know, Sunday Kung Fu stuff that was English dubbed, English dubbed adaptations of uh, lots of Shaw Brothers stuff from from the period, and so those were my those were like my two things that I I really loved. And so this thing came along, and it was like, what what what? It's 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 a merging of the worlds. Two things that taste great together. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's narratively such a mess. It's just like every big comic book property crossover that you've ever read. So. For those out there, any comic book fans out there, if you've ever read like, you know, Marvel meets DC, you know, and, you know, the, the like the Justice League crosses over and, and meets the X-Men or something. And they've done a countless number of these, you know, a Teenage Mutant Turtle, Ninja Turtles meets Star Trek, you know, they're <laughs> no. They, no, seriously, they, they've got these. Crazy Can they crossovers. even do that? Because so all companies do come to a sort of agreement because uh... no, they come they, they come to agreement. These, they, you know, they're legitimate properties of, of these crazy crossovers out there a, a lot of times it's because you have two very popular intellectual properties and it's like you said put them together and you know two two tastes taste great together not always not always i mean a lot of times the narratives feel very forced and you know the art can be uneven from the depiction on the cover to what's going on in the inside but yeah they still sell and and people will like to read them and so as with this, you know, it's it was a, it was an idea that just kind of blew my mind that what Peter Cushing and, and David Chang together, how can this be bad? And for me as a kid, it wasn't bad. It was awesome. Um, and so I have a hard time talking about it because looking back on it and, and I'm talking specifically about the cut, the seven brothers meet Dracula or the seven brothers and one sister, which I think they actually had that perhaps on one release at one time. Right. Um, meet Dracula, and I watched the heck out of that VHS. I think I I, I might have broken the tape um, at some point, but I didn't know. You know, it was like growing up watching um, Star Blazers, which was the sort of U.S. adaptation of Space Battleship Yamato that was cropped up and and sold off, or later Robotech. You know, which is the very, very famous Carl Masek Harmony Gold mishmash of three different properties, um, you know, into this one long thing. You know, three different anime series that had nothing to do with do with each other. And they just wow. kind of chopped them up and, and crammed them together. Um, the first being sort of the most popular as um, Super Dimension Fortress Macross. Right. 
you know, so you grew up with stuff like that and, and you don't know any better until you get older and you read about it. And then, you know, you read later that, oh, this is actually a terrible cut of the original and you should try to get a hold of the original. And I did. I got I got the Laserdisc and the player didn't work and I never got around to watching it and I can't watch it now. And for whatever reason, I kind of knew the Anchor Bay DVD was out there. I just never, never, you know, there's, I've been going after other new things, you know, I just never got around to, to getting to it. So thank you for this opportunity. So you, so you haven't seen, you didn't see the full version? I before did not this? see the full Holy version crap. until this. So, so, so let, let us lead into the quick opinions then, if you can verbalize it. What happened to the movie now then, in your eyes? It's so much better. Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> so much better uh, you know uh, you, you've opened my eyes to, to to an even greater revelation and it's still a narrative mess um, but it's still so fun and and it taps into this this bit of childhood nostalgia that I had um, to be sure yeah I like it a lot too I mean I I uh, I didn't see it growing up and uh, when I got it I had both versions at hand so I watched the uh, the Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires ver- version first and then that uh, edited down rearranged version for Seven Brothers Meet Dracula but uh, it's basic uh, to the point East meets West horror fun I mean ultimately I don't think I know more of Shaw Brothers versus Hammer but I don't think either camp got buried I, it truly feels like a little bit of 50-50, nicely evenly divided Hammer experience and Shaw Brothers experience, which is kind of neat. And uh, and therefore, for fans of Hammer, this would be a new view into Shaw Brothers, and for fans of Shaw Brothers, this would be a new view, hopefully, into Hammer. And uh, as I probably mentioned, I've not sought out uh, the Dracula classics from Hammer, which I should, and I can, but uh, it certainly opened my eyes to to the coolness of combining the the presence of Peter Cushing as Van Helsing and bringing that into a Shaw Brothers movie and bringing it into the company of uh, such a compelling star like David Chang is. And uh, it, I, I like it a lot. It's all good fun. And, and uh, in terms of Shaw Brothers and horror in the 70s, uh, if I'm drawing up on like spontaneous memory, they dipped into it here and there. They mixed so many genres in the 70s anyway, so there was no true focus on only horror and only kung fu and swordplay and uh, only exploitation for a while. They mixed and matched, and there were certainly horror movies in the 70s. But for Hong Kong cinema in general, I think uh, the 1980s is when they start to crank it and extend their knowledge of action choreography and stunts and making supernatural shenanigans combined with it. Obviously, Summer Hong's work on Encounters of the Spooky Kind and then Mr. Vampire and how Choi Hak uh, depicted the supernatural stuff. I mean, so my point is it feels like an early horror experience of the Shaw Brothers lot, but not completely new. But, so I, I I see it as part of that development. Uh, it raises the profile of Shaw Brothers and hopefully it did in the long run also that the movie enjoyed a reputation and uh, that's not a bad thing but Shaw Brothers if, if you were to pick uh, when they decided on horror that would be the 80s because then then they uh, started to go all out gory gooey exploitation style nutty with boxes omen and seating of a ghost and those kind of movies so um, it found a home at Shaw Brothers Horror eventually and uh, then it was on truly so I, I wasn't familiar with uh, Hammer, as I said, but I'm sure they brought production values to their movies. So this merger with a high-end production house like Shaw Brothers uh, 
technically on paper it should be above average and it is and uh, is that your memory of uh, watching hammer films as well that they were you know d- decently enough uh, uh, as produced uh, they, they weren't like cheap or horror knockoffs or anything or what's your sort of spontaneous memory of hammer technically there it holds again it holds a special place for me uh, in terms of my kind of upbringing but i think for i guess horror fans today you know if you're you know a young person who appreciates the kind of storytelling that goes on with horror movies today where it's a lot more visceral and you might find them a bit slow i don't know it's uh it would would, i've never really sat down with somebody uh, a young generation film fan who's kind of grown up with the stuff that uh, i i guess is more trendy today and i'm not speaking of necessarily just you know the 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 gore stuff um itself like the saw movies or, or things like that but even some of the more some of the more intelligent films, I guess, things like I, I would say where it's a bit more brainy or heady, like something like It Follows. I don't, I don't know if the the genre fans of today would be as entertained by the 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 Hammer stuff from that era, because it's got a very, again, it's got a very distinctive look and feel and pacing. You know, the blood has a certain color tone to it that's very indicative of the era, and and you know, again, the camera work and and a lot of that is very indicative. Of that area, and and in some ways, it's kind of like Shaw. You know, you can recognize Shaw films based on a lot of those same kind of features as well. It's a good description, and uh, I I get a good sense of what Hammer was bringing to the table. So it wasn't like Ed Wood, low grade stuff, but they they were properly produced movies, even even if they were genre movies that maybe found difficulty being respected critically. I I don't know what the UK press thought of Hammer in general, but. Uh, it certainly seems like a good merger that uh, they they can bring the acting talent and technicians and merge that with what Shaw Brothers can bring on the same level. And obviously they got their standing sets and their vast land there to get this going. And obviously we see that as Chan Chen, who I was uh, referring to as uh, one of my favorite Shaw Brothers villains. I, I keep thinking, though, that Ku Feng was probably busy because uh, Ku Feng would have been great in this role, uh, mm. playing, uh, you know, uh, Dracula. Uh, possesses this uh, character this monk so I, I i was in a good mood but still my ma- my mind wandered a little bit because w- when you see chan chen climbing the hills you know and panting and uh, you know it's taking a long time and, uh, and all i can think of, keep thinking in my head was someone's gonna come on the screen and say it's monty python's flying circus <laughs> <laughs> it would fit it would definitely fit that scene is shorter in the Seven Brothers Meet Dracula version that they, they couldn't stand in any of that panting. And I, I love how, and maybe this is what, what Hammer brought, this kaleidoscope of colors as they get indoors. And it's not gothic scary, but rather it's all colors of the rainbow gothic and cobwebs and bats on a string. And I became instantly in a good mood, not because I was laughing at the chosen filmmaking at hand, but just how they commit themselves to this mood, painting the set as they do with uh, lights and uh, what kind of horror tone they were going for which is not scary but rather it feels detached and relaxed and not um, sort of automatic filmmaking and it's not great or anything but it made me instantly in a good mood and while i'm easy to please paul i think still that there's something here in terms of when chan chen meets up with dracula and he's possessed by dracula and now he's gonna play dracula because uh you know, we got another actor playing Dracula, and you don't want to scare audiences too much by having another one 
replacing the favorite Chris Lee for extended periods of time. I'm thinking almost that they wanted to play it safe and not freak out audiences. So let's just scale back the appearance of Dracula and not annoy audiences with the recasting. So my my point is, and my I guess my spontaneous question: Does it get the tone right in terms of? Uh, uh, the set and how they get the ball rolling plot-wise or, or is this lower grade hammer in actuality versus the other Dracula, Dracula movies again narratively it's a mess I mean it's like why does Monk Ka again playing by Chen Zhen, why does he need to go to Transylvania or to Europe or wherever they're at to, to find Dracula you know what does he expect Dracula to do you know based on the problems that that he said he's he's having it, it it's not really clear and then you know why then does dracula do what he does you know and decide oh, i'm gonna take a trip to the east you know it's it's almost because i recently watched uh the third hotel transylvania movie because i have kids and that's what you do <laughs> no you're an adam and, sander fan and i stay committed <laughs> to the very end you know and it's like you know dracula's going on a cruise you know why because it's they're a family and that's what they do it's like okay dracula's gonna go to the orient why because you know he just wants to get away from because he's the a a for a ninth movie people <laughs> <laughs> running out of ideas thankfully we got shore brothers to yeah. help us out. but but you know you know looking at that design that, that those distinct you know one hallway is red and then they enter the chamber and that is all green is that just hammer bingo as such that visual yeah. design it, it 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 very much is, and the interesting thing too, as I rewatch this, is a lot of visual cues were popping up in terms of not just the art design, but in some, in terms of some of the the cinematography choices and some of the art direction. So there's a couple shots of Monk Ka and his makeup and what he's wearing, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, he almost looks like David Lopan from big trouble in little china <laughs> would this have been an inspiration for that and there's a later scene where you've got this you know army of dead rising out of the ground and i'm thinking wow suddenly i'm reminded of sam raimi's army of darkness you know is this you know was he taking inspiration from some of these shots it's not impossible not impossible and you know that scene the, the scene in particular the, the the scenes where the dead rises out of the ground which they reduplicate i want to say two or three times they they run it during the credits for some strange reason, and then I think it's run once through a dream sequence, and then once again when it actually happens. So it's like burned into my brain, but it's such a creepy sequence the way it's filmed, and and the music that they use for those zombies whenever they're kind of like shambling around, it always creeped me out as a kid, but I always thought it was great, and it's it's still great. It still holds up very well. There's there's one in particular where this corpse kind of just comes up out of the grave and slowly turns its head towards you. And it's just, it's super creepy for me. And it may not work well for somebody, again, a sort of modern genre fan sitting down to watch that. They might look at that and go, oh, this just looks so stagey and and, and so fake by today's standards. But it still holds up for me. Oh, that stuff does because uh, Roy Ward Baker and his cinematographer, that, that Walking Dead army, those very very shots as they wake up and they use slow-mo or uh, they slow it down in editing it's not bad at all and and as i said it's not a scary movie overall but there is a sense of um 
a director or, or technicians and actors and all that, they were able to pull off this uh, atmosphere despite not focusing truly on creeping us out uh, in general because it, it's really a mix of kung fu fun, there's exploitation elements here uh, as you know, virgins are tied down to this contraption where they... They, uh, they drain them of their blood or something. But I didn't really understand that either because that pot in the middle of uh, the contraption with all the naked virgins on it, that pot apparently dissolves uh, the actual vampires. So it seems like acid. But maybe virgin blood is acid. I don't know. But I, I, it's irresistible sort of imagery that they have no shame about putting putting out there. And it's not cheap or desperate or like... You don't roll your eyes at that, at least I don't, because it's it's part of this simply conceived fun that also happens to contain stuff for Hong Kong film fans. That's the thing, too. I don't think, Paul, that Shaw Brothers was shoved into the background. I think when Hammer very much let... Uh, like we, we enjoy the fact that Kung Fu is both something we like, but we know the market likes it. So we're going to let you do it. And that, I think, shows, especially in the actual action sequences that uh, Lau Galong and Tongai action directed. So that, to me, is delightful that the Kung Fu side of it all got to live and breathe and we got to sit down and watch a very recognizable Shaw Brothers movie that clearly also was shot by the Hong Kong crew and not this inadequate UK crew that didn't know how to stage action because I don't know how you felt but immediately I felt like this is like a Chang Chia movie all of a sudden and that's a mm. good thing a very good thing so and that action is in the that US cut as we said anyway so obviously you, you got to experience the the Kung Fu action then but uh, watching it now did you feel like that Shaw Brothers got to do their thing yeah I think so and perhaps to the detriment of the hammer side because I mean narratively the story doesn't make a ton of sense. <laughs> I mean, because you have Van Helsing here in Asia touring and, you know, then he links up with uh, the David Chang character. He's Si Chang, who's this ancestor, and they have this whole flashback sequence. And, you know, the main problem is he's heard this rumor that there are these, there's this village plagued by these seven golden vampires, you know, and the, and so the rumor turns out to be true and he's going to go to the village and help them. But these seven golden vampires, I don't know how you saw them, but they seemed pretty easy to beat because all you had to do is grab their golden medallion. And nobody did that. <laughs> they did it with the first one. Nobody bothered to do it with the other six, right? And it seemed like it wasn't that hard, you know? I mean, yeah, they were pretty good fighters. But as we get to sort of the, the denouement or the climax of the film, nobody's grabbing those things. They're just beating them in more traditional ways. And it's fine. It's action-based. That part of it, I think, is top-notch. But just sitting back narratively, I'm going, these aren't the hopping vampires of Mr. Vampire, unfortunately. We need a, you know, some time to get to those. It's a fine film for what it is. But again, narratively, just a mess because I had so many questions. You know, why boil the blood? You're draining the virgin's blood into the, or the girl's blood into the pot. Why do they got to boil it? Are they worried about germs? I mean, <laughs> so he was boiled to death and not dissolved yeah. to death. That maybe I don't know. Yeah, I, I can't pinpoint because you're you're right, but I can't pinpoint why it's okay to both not notice and it's consciously and it's okay if you don't notice because I I guess when the vibe is right and the atmosphere is right and the fun is correct in your eyes, then you don't mind. But a strong point I think in in trying to forget the sort of lapses in logic 
is the fact that casting. Because I, I could watch, uh, despite not seeing any of the other Van Helsing roles, and it might be Van Helsing rerun here, and Peter Cushing could do this in his sleep. But Peter Cushing on default is, is to me, magnetic and charismatic and engaging as he syncs up in sync sound with uh, David Chang and it's all exposition galore. But there, there's something very just, uh, you, you sit up and you listen to Van Helsing talk of uh, uh, and deliver sort of cheesy dialogue too. That exposition back and forth is... I think it's pretty neat, actually. And David Chang is uh, corresponding to that because, one, Cushing doesn't come off as a bored actor. And David Chang seems very comfortable uh, with acting. With Peter probably admired him to a degree. Uh, and David is also comfortable enough in English. So we, we get both of them in sync sound here. And uh, that's kind of part of the key, that uh, Peter Cushing can sell you anything with his type of calm delivery and classy delivery, whether it's... a uh, completely illogical and also getting casting right for a cheesy movie turns out to be uh the actual key to an enjoyment i think yeah oh or what do you think yeah absolutely and i mean take note filmmakers if you're planning to ever make like a sequel of this uh, and i'm looking at you star wars rogue one okay remember what mr brorson just said live peter cushing okay engaging oh, yeah. active commanding presence okay Live Peter Cushing. Just remember that. Um, so, yeah, no, he's, you know, he's amazing. He could be reading the side of a cereal box and it, it would come off as amazing. And to see David Chang, you know, acting opposite him in Sync Sound is is equally worth the price of admission here um, because that's not something you get, you get to see too often. And, and he's great. And you've got, you know, a pretty strong cast here. Some people will recognize some of the other players, I think. If you've seen, you've seen probably seen her in a couple bit parts and other things in the, in the 70s. Jisoo, who plays the sister, Mai Kuei, she's she's good, um, you know, for the little bit that she has to do. A lot of action, she's given some action to do, which is good. If you blink, you'll see that one of the, I think the backup fighters for the mob boss is uh, Yen Shi Quan, you know, who... Has been in tons of stuff, but would later become famous as an antagonist in the uh, against Wong Fei Hong. You know, Jet Li's Wong Fei Hong. If you're looking for him, you'll instantly recognize him when he shows up there. But he's he's just got kind of like a background supporting role here, and you know other other people. That as you sort of go down the list, if you're familiar with films of this area, you'll be able to you know pick them out and stuff that you've seen, as well as uh, I guess we should make mention of uh, Julie. Egg or Edge, if I, I'm not sure how we would pronounce her last name as Vanessa Buren, the rich socialite who ends up kind of funding their quest, who gets a little bit of, I don't know, how would you say it, brawless action in the final sequence for some reason. She's a little bit cost for boobs here. Yeah, because, you know, when you're fighting vampires, you want to be brawless. Of course, uh, Lao Gawing uh, is, uh, is the archer out of the Seven yes. Brothers. So uh, we, we get uh, plenty of face time. They, they keep them dialogue less, which makes sense probably from a practical point of view because you got to pick the performers that are comfortable in English. But I kind of enjoy that vibe that the, the Seven Brothers and their sister. And they do list Lao Kalung as one of the action directors. Yes, um, yes they do. So and and properly also him and Tong Guy because they were the team behind Chang Che for a number of years and still were. 
uh, up until like 1975. Then they all started to branch out. Lao Galong started to direct on his own. Tong Guy continued to work for various people and started to direct himself uh, later in the 80s. Um, so it, it's really nice that they, they got the top talent and, out of, and obviously David Chang came from the Chang Che camp as well, having done so many movies with Chen Quan Tai and Ti Long. Ti Long would actually probably had scenes with Peter Cushing, but I, I need to rewatch it. But Ti Long is in another Hammer Hong Kong production called Shatter, or they call him Mr. Shatter. And uh, Peter Cushing is in that one as well. But uh, that, that, that's like a modern action piece and not, uh, not a Dracula movie as such. Not very good, though, but uh, good fun to watch just because it's a co-production aspect. Uh, the, the, the mass brawl uh, that happens, uh, well, there are two, two or three mass brawls. are very Hong Kong in style. They, they, they contain this mix of early 70s, Basher style of kung fu and weapons kung fu, and that that mix is something that Lao Galong and Tongai were known for. Um, so I think they they really get a chance to choreograph it like they would have on an actual Hong Kong movie, and not this uh, watered down version of it. So uh, and, and and really, they they just typical Chang Chia style bloodshed, you know, as the stuntmen turn to the camera and spit blood at us and things like that. So it really. The, the the visual cues are very much uh, Hong Kong uh, in style, but compared to the Seven Brothers Meet Dracula edit, uh, the actual full one here, it has nicely spaced out interactions, meaning that there's violence, action, and, ex- and exploitation within 85 minutes, but not a chunk of it in one go or anything. They space it out pretty nicely, and uh, there's never a sense of boredom though because it, it's a simple enough movie. I, I really enjoy that, that uh, it never has any lulls as such, just nice and even, fun with narrative lapses, as you've talked about. And then uh, both, you know, you, you get a sense of the Hammer side and the Shaw Brothers side all throughout. And uh, there's really no, no complaints here. And uh, it was timely, too, even though it didn't play in the US until the end of the 70s. Kung Fu was playing well with American audiences at this point. Uh, King Boxer, Five Fingers of Death, I think had been out like a year. In America, some other driving driving movies from Taiwan that played well in America. And obviously, we we had the Bruce Lee ripples had started as early as in the early seventies and all of that. So the timing is good, and also the execution is not this desperate one just to uh, fit the marketplace or anything. Um, even though it didn't uh, light the market on fire or anything, but. Uh, Clearly, at least you, but hopefully a lot more people who caught it on VHS or maybe TV, it, it really stuck with them because of those two aspects, Hammer and Shaw Brothers, as I keep uh, coming back to. And uh, I, I find that very neat still, even though I, I have only a DVD history of the film, but I find it very neat that the the two camps just played well together. And it feels cool to have Kung Fu and then Peter Cushing saying this... Uh, you know, this cheesy dialogue, we're near the lair of the vampires. Strike him in the heart! <laughs> I'm having a good mood. I'm just going to lean back and I need to make notes because I'm doing the work, but I'm just going to lean back. This is enjoyable, man. It translates, and I, I can never look down on that, you know? It's, you know, it's just a fun revisit for me. I don't think it's a film that's for everybody, but if it's something that you've been a fan of Shaw over the years or you've been a fan of Hammer over the years... And it's just been off your radar. It's it's worth tracking down. But I would say, do find the full cut because it is far superior. Um, even though it's a bit le- more lengthy, but not by much. It's only only eighty five minutes. So yeah, the international cut is just 
uh, trimmed out some scenes that really, I guess they felt the pacing for the time was indicative of the era. But like one of one of the things I noticed is at the very end sequence, for example, after the big the big fight, the villains defeated, and they choose to freeze frame um, inside this pagoda where the the battle is taking place. You know, on this shot of, of a thing that I won't spoil. And, and they freeze frame on that shot, whereas in the regular cut, it kind of goes out, it pans up, it looks at the pagoda, and then it freeze frames there, and then the credits roll. And I'm just wondering, why did they feel they needed to do that first cut on that end sort of shot? And I think it's because that's how a lot of other Hammer films typically ended, mm. whereas Shaw Brothers films typically ended you know, in, in different ways, including, you know, a more scenic shot, perhaps. I don't know. It, it just some weird choices. There's a lengthy dialogue scene early on that's edited out between uh, a character who you won't actually really see much of at all in the in the international cut. But he's there and he kind of introduces some of the key players together. And for me, it's it improves the narrative structure overall, having seen that, because without it, it's just like, oh, Here's this person. It's like there are a couple random shots of people just kind of like looking back at each other, you know, and, and not a lot being said. And they've kind of taken out some of the dialogue and it's a very silent scene. And then it's like, oh, hi, I'm so and so. And I guess it works. Expedition. But it, for me, it doesn't work as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Vampires fight now. It re- that shorter cut for viewers, it really felt like, you know, they wanted to strip as much dialogue and plot as they could and just line up the horror element and the exploitation elements and whenever they need a dialogue they kept as little as effing possible first 10-15 minutes feels like a silent movie because it's just uh, repeated shots and uh, silent stretches of dialogue that, uh, that that was silent or they've taken out as you hinted at so it feels really strange to watch this uh, it feels experimental <laughs> even to a degree like if no one's gonna say anything we're just gonna have like a uh, vampire circus here without any dialogue well the the effects work is uh, i don't know if it's indicative of hammer but it's all good and fun even though it's cheesy as the we, we get multiple shots of uh golden vampires deflating and that's literally you know it feels like coat with sort of golden vampire patterns on it and they, they and they fill that with air and then they deflate that literally and they have some ash in the eyes and that's it's not great but i i i still was kept in a good mood watching that stuff and then when you hit the finale which takes place in the pagoda and then they light up the set like they did at the beginning and that just looks fantastic especially in a better looking version that uh, the full D- full dvd version represents versus the slightly lesser better looking version from the u.s the seven brothers meet dracula it's night and day kind of how how it looks because it just looks classier the more remastered it looks how they drench those walls with red and greens and uh, it, it makes up for the fact that the actual van helsing versus dracula confrontation is woefully both short and dull and sort of like well, what, what do we do now the ninth time around well i guess i gotta pierce his heart anyone anyone have any ideas no well, i guess we'll do that then and then, then we're done <laughs> so I, I don't know if any of the other battles were epic or anything with dialogue exchanges between cushing and lee and then like a epic fight but uh, here it just feels like uh 
get it over quick and then send the audiences on the way because uh, it's not like it has built up um, towards this uh, desire for us to see the form of Dracula again uh, or anything. It's, uh, it's pretty com- forgotten and then we realize, oh yeah, Chan Chan was Dracula. So to, to me, it doesn't feel like a Dracula movie necessarily. Or What do you think? It's really not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, truth be told, I mean, he's there kind of as bookends, but you could really just almost edit him off <laughs> and still you'd have a pretty complete movie. But it, it's uh, it's worth watching for the uh, both versions to see how editorially they wanted to sell uh, the Summer Brothers Meet Dracula edit to the US. And um, I'm uh, kind of uh, I'm kind of glad that you got to experience this uh, finally as it uh, should be. And uh, you, you're not dumb or you're not uh, slow-witted or you shouldn't be looked down upon just because you enjoyed the other edit. Because uh, what else did you have? Well, well, you, well, you, well, you, well, you had one thing, but you didn't buy a player to play it on, which is your fault, by the way. <laughs> shouldn't pick up stuff that Indeed. you can't watch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't tell, don't tell me that, please. <laughs> Uh, but uh, it, it, it's all good fun, and uh, you can get it. I mean, uh, it's still standard definition only, though, because as far as I can see, it hasn't made any debut in HD, either on disc or on, on streaming, such as on iTunes. So The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, it only has a DVD version. That early Anchorbay DVD on its own, or in a double feature pack with the Peter Cushing movie Frankenstein Created Woman, which is what I got, it's either somewhat expensive or hugely expensive because either editions, either even if you get the Legend of the Seven Dracula on its own or in that double pack, you're gonna pay quite a bit for it. So uh, keep your eye out if they lower that price on the marketplaces and secondhand and so forth. But the best looking, although it uh, doesn't have that alternate edit as bonus, is the Warner DVD that's available. Uh, globally it's reasonably reasonably priced on both the amazon marketplace and the u.s side so uh, if uh, you want to pick up uh, a, a nice looking although it has no extras uh, version of the movie then that's the one to pick up paul so um, and uh, if you want to own the other one either ask uh, nicely for a dvdr <laughs> from my side or wait until it goes down in price uh, because uh, you don't want to pay like 30 40 50 60 uh, bucks for for an old dvd like that it, it's good but um it's a bit un- it's not reasonable to uh to crank prices like that fingers crossed for a hd blu-ray remastered version at some point yeah I'm, I'm wondering how warner archive uh sees this movie because they put out physical dvds under a sort of banner thing a warner archive collection it's a popular enough movie i mean heck uh, even um you know i'm not looking down on it but it's not like warner brothers and their Blu-ray archive collection range only consists of classy movies. I mean, we even got Texas Chainsaw Massacre free uh, just uh, earlier this year. So it's not like they stay away from that and only offer up like black and white and color classics from their catalog. So one one could hope at least that we get a an HD upgrade, even if it's still missing extras and even if they can't obtain that alternate edit uh, that will still make for an upgrade but uh, as it stands now the dvd looks absolutely fine so for a movie that's uh, in need of uh, the colors to pop every now and again it does its job very well in that regard the old anchor bay dvd is just uh, when it's all red on screen then it's a bleeding mess uh, you know literally like uh, it's very smeary that's uh, our recommendation for you so uh, that's uh, our episode for this 
time around. So uh, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, uh, go to podcastonfire.com and uh, our back catalog of uh, every show that we do is available over there. As well as links to our social media and any relevant links uh, to this episode will be available in the show posts such as uh, trailers and what have you. So check out that trailer for uh, Seven Brothers and the One Sister uh, versus Meet Dracula trailer or whatever the trailer man was uh, stuck with delivering. It was a mouthy title for the trailer that they repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. So it was it's a fair title, even if it's a mouthy title. <laughs> so there it is. Do you even own uh, uh, that uh, uh, worn out VHS anymore or that's been lost to times, time and moving and so forth? No, I do have that in storage still. Right on. An original one or like a taping? Uh, I believe it's an original one, yeah. Right on. But it's it's heavily worn. Cool. Uh, you got to store it in a glass case like uh, Scrooge McDuck or something. Like, <laughs> <laughs> my first something. I don't. I, I, to be honest, I wouldn't know if it would even play though anymore because it's been in storage for so long. Who knows? I'd have to dig it out, see if it's gotten moldy or anything like that. And uh, I don't have any other plugs, so I'm going to throw over to you and uh, plug your show in whatever way you please. Yeah, uh, East Screen, West Screen. You find us over at Comcast.com if uh, you're interested in uh, you know newer-ish movies and stuff like that. Including, um, by by the time you hear this, uh, the review of The Golden Job starring the, the old Hong Hing uh, Triad Boys gang not playing the Hong Hing Triad Boys gang. That's going to be out on Comcast.com, so check it out. Looking forward to it myself, because at, at the time of recording, it isn't out. So, uh, so I'm going to send Paul out so he can continue to edit away. Or, or you're like me, like you have a backlog of shows by now that you, oh, that you made. Oh, uh, still, still have a backlog. Good boy, <laughs> good boy, good man. That's how that's how proper podcasters work. Pile up stuff. So there it is. Uh, I've been Kenny B uh, with you to talk Young and Dangerous 2 and The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. And with me was Paul Fox. So uh, say goodbye, buddy. And thank you for uh, taking us down memory lane. And thank you for having me. And bye-bye, everybody. Bye.